This week's Institute of Ideas podcast is called Kindergarten Culture. Why does the government treat us like children? And was recorded at the Battle of Ideas 2014 at the Barbican in London. Welcome to this session, Kindergarten Culture. Um, why does government treat us like children? There's a change in the way the government is relating to us. It's not necessarily new, but it's got a, a, a real kind of a, a new dynamic is, is developing. It's becoming more developed. Um, and there's implications for ourselves in terms of our relationship to the state and new state proxies that are, uh, are being set up. Um, as, a, as a short example, uh, my four-year-old daughter cycles to nursery every day, um, you know, with me, not on her own. Um, and it, it's a great nursery, but um, she doesn't wear a helmet. Um, I, I, I'm on the border place, Scotland. You may see that from some of the, the, the biography details on me. And I know that there's no point in her wearing a helmet. Um, if, she gonna, if she's going to come off in an urban environment, she's going to suffer long bone injuries. Uh, she's got more chance of suffering a head injury as a pedestrian than a cyclist. Um, and the, the, uh, the people at the nursery keep saying, Mr Knight, your daughter should really be wearing a helmet. Isabella, you know, your daddy not got you a helmet yet. Um, and that's quite funny um, until you realise that in Scotland we've got named person legislation that's just come in uh, and it will be implemented in the next year or so where um, at risk is being dispensed with as a category and cause for concern um, is going to be replacing that. And uh, the named adults that will be proxy kind of uh, state guardians of our children um, from birth to 18 will be healthcare workers at nursery, will be nursery workers. So I said... I kind of took it for a couple of times and then said to the nursery workers, do you know that that potentially is going to be a cause for concern uh, when you're the named person? And it kind of really took them aback as, as much as it was taking me aback in terms of my understanding of that and uh, made them think, um, certainly made me think in terms of them becoming proxy um, state employees. It's a private nursery. Um, and there are other implications for democracy um, uh, of, of this debate, um, at which I'd converge our speakers and everybody here. I don't think it's a black and white debate. I think there are um, uh, kind of uh, nuances. Um, uh, do experts know more than us? Don't they know more than us? Um, uh, what about private activity? Um, if, if there's uh, you can a major kind of uh, impact of your private activity on the rest of the world, um, and, and, and and other such aspects to it, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, there's an opportunity, I think, for the, 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 the speakers initially and, and latterly in terms of the discussion for people to kind of give anecdotes about what bugs them most. Um, we're getting towards the end of the conference now, so I think we can, people will be tired, um, we can relax a bit. And I'd also like people to maybe think about what's going to happen in the next year or so before, um, you know, what they can take away from this conference. Um, the sponsor today uh, for this session, which um, I'd like you to thank, are S.A.B. Miller and the Boysdale. I'm going to introduce our speakers in the order in which they're going to speak, and, and then we'll crack on. So first, um, on my extreme right, we have uh, Chris Snowden. Um, uh, Chris is the Director of Lifestyle Economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs. His research focuses on lifestyle freedoms, prohibition, and policy-based evidence, which I thought was an interesting way of kind of posing it. Um, he's an occasional contributor to, the, to City AM and Spiked and uh, regularly appears on TV and radio discussing social and economic issues. After Chris, we're going to have Martha. Uh, Martha Gill is a journalist um, for The Economist. Previously, she wrote uh, on science and politics at The Telegraph and before that was a staff writer and weekly columnist for The New Statesman. Uh, she's appeared on Newsnight um, and the Today programme and, uh, uh, and has a regular, is a regular paper reviewer for Sky News. After Martha, we have Dan. Um, Dan Hodges, 
uh, is a British commentator and blogger uh, who's a columnist for the Daily Telegraph um, newspaper, self-described as tribal neo-Blairite, which maybe will explain um, the practical implications of that uh, later if he gets the opportunity. In the last 20 years, uh, Dan has worked as a parliamentary researcher, um, a Labour Party official, GMB official, and worked as Director of Communications for the Transport for London, under, under Transport for London under Ken Livingstone. And lastly, extreme left, Ben uh, Pyle. Uh, ben is an independent political researcher, filmmaker, writer and blogger. His research interests are energy and environmental politics, and he's interested in the intersection of science and society. He is convener of the Big Potatoes Energy Working Group and a frequent contributor to Spiked. Okay, so the, the discussion is going to take the usual format. These our speak, speakers will have kind of between four and five minutes to outline a provocation on this discussion. Uh, we'll have a short discussion here. Bounce it out to yourselves. Um, the emphasis is very much on your participation in this. So, off we go. Chris. Thank you very much, yes. Um, the usual reasons people give for why the government increasingly wants to micromanage people's lives come down to the, the lack of big ideas in politics, so that we're not fighting the Cold War anymore, that we've got rid of absolute poverty, there aren't great big divides, no big futuristic pro- projects anymore. And I think there is a lot of truth in all that. Um, I also think there's a much simpler reason, which is that we have a vast public health industry that is pushing politicians to, uh, to do more and more of this, and they've been very persuasive in making politicians believe that um, this kind of micromanagement is popular, it's ethical, and, uh, and necessary. And I think the reason the public health lobby is so powerful is there's actually a combination of several different movements, really. One is sort of uh, pseudo-medical, the other is fairly classic um, moral entrepreneurs. From about the 1970s, when infectious diseases were virtually wiped out in the West, the uh, public health movement underwent a change in definition, started looking at non-communicable diseases, and the risk factors for many of these um, are, are things that more entrepreneurs have been targeting for many years, for one thing, but they're also lifestyle factors, and so they involve private behavior. And um, many of these uh, non-communicable diseases are just qualitatively different, and you're frequently dealing with people who are so old, you're not so much saving lives as changing the cause of death, uh, essentially. Um, But it is a a new dragon to slay. And so this has led to, uh, in, in very recent years, what I consider to be a fairly insane attempt to reduce the number of non-communicable diseases, something that can only be done by uh, encouraging a rise in communicable diseases or by abolishing death. Um, And that's not the only thing that um, I think is insane. The the core belief behind these assertions, and indeed behind the public health movement in general, is so ridiculous that nobody ever really explains it explicitly. It can't ever be be, be, um, spoken out loud. To give you an example, a couple of days ago, a branch of the World Health Organization uh, drafted a new declaration for all its members, 170 countries, to to sign, uh, which declared, amongst other things, that they were going to get, quote, complete victory over tobacco. Um, But one particular line stood out to me, and it says, the right to enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of health guaranteed by international law and national legislation takes precedence over any laws related to tobacco use. There is no fundamental right to tobacco use. Now, leave aside for a moment whether it is 
really a right to have the highest attainable standard of health in the sense that that could ever be invoked in a court of law. Leave aside the fact that in a free society you don't need a written constitutional right to smoke. The mere fact that it is not illegal is in itself a right. Uh, leave aside the fact that the World Health Organization has no d- democratic legitimacy and that this meeting took place in Russia um, with the media and the public banned from entering the room. Forget all that. Instead, just look at what is being said here, that the supposed right to perfect health trumps democratically legitimate laws and trumps any un- unwritten rights and that the pursuit of health is the highest priority. And that is the core belief, and that's the, the fatal conceit of the public health movement, which is it trumps every other consideration. And this is obviously untrue. How do we know it's untrue? Because nobody in the world lives their life as if it were true. And what's not true for the individual cannot possibly be true for the collective. So if people wanted to make health their, their, the only priority or their top priority in life, then they would already do so. And so in a way, the very existence of the public health movement proves that it's not necessary. Uh, and that people don't actually want it. Now, faced with this, um, you know, people come up with all sorts of excuses to do with advertising and products being too cheap and they're, you know, they're, they're uh, being misled in some way and doing things that they, they don't want to do. But this doesn't stand up against empirical evidence or logical uh, deduction. In practice, people offset costs against benefits, and this is never reflected in the, in the dialogue. Um, and in, in practice... People maximize their utility, as economists would say. It's a rather vague phrase, but its very vagueness at least allows for the possibility that there might be more than one, um, one uh, ambition and aspiration in life other than pristine health. Um, so there you have the sort of corruption of the public health movement, then attracts quite naturally uh, your classical um, you know, moral zealots, teetotalers, anti-smokers, food faddists, back to the land, fruitcakes, and so on. Um, now, the fortunes of these kind of groups have ebbed and flowed um, uh, throughout history. I guess the question we're trying to answer here is why are they, why are they doing so well now? Um, I think there are a, a number of reasons, and I'll, I'll end with these uh, reasons. I think, um, for one thing, uh, the lifestyle regulation agenda has portrayed itself as a, uh, a branch of medicine, and people in, instinctively trust doctors and nurses. Um, I think that they've managed to redefine public health without the public really noticing and so that they can portray themselves as the heirs to Jon Snow and Louis Pasteur rather than Carrie Nation and uh, Mary Whitehouse. Um, I think thirdly, the campaigners have persuaded a large number of otherwise liberal-minded people that unhealthy behavior bears a cost on them because of the NHS. Uh, This is the the big underlying lie behind so, so many other lies. It's a zombie argument no matter how many times it's knocked down because it's not true. Uh, it still keeps reasserting itself. Fourthly, that the media love to terrify people rather than reassure them. So the, the media will happily cover any story uh, which, which suggests that there's some sort of um, looming threat to with, uh, the way we're leading our lives. Fifthly, um, I think that, as I said to start with, politicians um, perhaps do think that there aren't any big causes to, to fight for and therefore saving lives and indeed saving the planet um, seem like suitably heroic things for them to be doing on a, on a large scale. And finally, uh, and perhaps most importantly, the enormous amount of money that is thrown at these groups. You know, temperance groups, anti-smoking groups have historically been run on a shoestring. And the reason for that is they haven't got much support because they are minority fringe interests. Today, there are just millions and millions of pounds from the, from the UK taxpayer, from the EU taxpayer, going towards these kind of, um, kind of groups. And it gives them a huge uh, voice um, 
Now, you might say, in closing, you might say it's a chicken-egg situation. Maybe we have a huge public health movement because there's a huge appetite for it. Well, that is possible, but I would argue that, in fact, um, if the public health movement didn't exist on the scale and with the money that it uh, currently has, nobody would really feel much of a need to invent it. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. I don't have a problem with the with the sugar tax. Oh, okay, fine. Um, yeah, I don't have a problem with the sugar tax or cigarette taxes or plain packaging um, or even smoking bans in public places and all the public health initiatives that, that Chris was talking about. I don't, I don't think they're an attack on our fundamental freedoms as citizens. Um, so, I mean, so it's what, what they're basically doing is, is ex what the government is doing is exerting a pressure on the market. Um, I mean, prices go up and down. These pressures on our choices already exist, obviously. Um, the government's um, exerting an extra pressure on, um, which is to do with kind of evidence they've gathered about what's good for us and not, what's not good for us. Now, does this really restrict our freedom? I, I don't think it does. I mean, you, you said that people maximise their utility efficiently, blah, blah, blah. They actually don't, because people tend, to be, people tend to be tired, their minds are on other things. They don't have time to read every single back of a packet of Haribo to see whether or not it's good for them. They don't have time to, to read the back of a cigarette, go and do, do, look up all the research that's been done, consider it against their mental health records to see whether it's really worth having that cigarette. Which, I mean, you know, that, that, that is a restriction on our fundamental freedom. We want to save our energy to make important big decisions about our lives and not have to spend uh, like half a day in a supermarket working out um, whether or not what the market's doing is, is, is really best for us. Um, so I don't, I don't really think that it's a problem that somebody else is, is looking out for our health. They're not telling us we can't buy these things. They're just making it slightly statist statistically less likely that we will do things that are that are really unhealthy. And we don't, we, we don't want to be on, have sort of constant vigilance just in case some lethal type of jelly bean comes on the market and the, and the government's not bothered to kind of protect us against it. Um, I think, I think the, other, the other area in which, uh, you know, uh, the nanny state is, 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 is an okay thing is, is in places where the efficacy of a certain treatment or service doesn't necessarily co correspond to its commercial success. So if we look at therapy... Mental health is on the rise. Um, so in the UK, what happens if you, if, you, if you need some therapy, you go to your GP and they say, OK, well, the thing that we'd recommend is cognitive behavioural therapy. Sorry, maybe some of you don't know what that is. It's a, it's, a, it's a type of therapy which is proved very effective. So you automatically go and do that. In places like France and Germany and Denmark, <coughs> you get some money from the, from the state and they say you can choose whatever kind of therapy you would like. Now, their industry is a complete mess, and they're always coming over to the UK to work out what, what, what's best to do because there are, no, there are no real guidelines, proper guidelines set up to help you decide what is best for you. And there's evidence there, and, they, and, 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 and the UK are very good at pushing us towards what treatment is best based on the evidence. But if you're just allowed a free choice in, a, in an arena where you have no real information... Then that, then that, then I, I don't think that's a desirable situation. However, um, just to get to a point where I think that I say is a bad thing, it is a bad thing when you're making a major life-changing de decision um, that will uh, th that does define your your um, your freedoms as a citizen, and in which it really is about your decision and not about what evidence can tell you what's best for you. For example, 
the decision to end your own life, um, assisted dying. Not letting people die when they really want to, I think, is a, te- is a terrible thing. Um, in fact, it's torture. I, I mean, uh, there, there's a report today, there was a maths teacher who starved herself to death over five weeks because she was in terrible pain, but she wasn't, uh, she wasn't allowed to request help to, to end her life. Um, it's not only that it's that it's uh, that, that that that's an important choice to be able to make. It's it's that having the possibility of that choice can actually make your quality of life better. There are lots of studies which show that um, having control over your life, being able to open the windows in your council flat, means that you'll get ill less often. Stress bosses, um, because they have more control, get ill less often than their stressed underlings who have less control. Um, and so just, just maybe if she had the idea that she could end her life, you know, in a sort of gentle way whenever she wanted to, she might have not taken that decision. Um, so this is, this is the real problem that, that, that the state can do, which, which is assessing that the risks out there for, for, for everyone are, are greater than the, than the individual. So, so, so the risks that they, that they think that uh, are out there if, if, they, if they allow assisted dying... I think it's like, you know, greedy relatives, uh, this decision being the, in the hand of sort of activist judges or, or, or the financially stressed health service, people will slip through their net. I mean, I think this is unrealistic. Uh, they won't, in, the meaning, in a meaningful way, be in the hands of, of judges or, 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 in, or, or the health service. They'll be in the hands of, of patients um, and their doctors. We already put a lot of uh, risky decisions in the hands of doctors uh, that this is this is something we're comfortable with anyway. Um, whenever you give people choice, uh, they're going to be vulnerable um, to influence from their relatives. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses um, uh, put pressure on 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 their relatives, perhaps not to have blood transfusions. But but this doesn't mean that we should restrict options. We should just set up uh, safety nets to to deal with this. Uh, so yeah, so, so sort of in conclusion. Um, I think, I, I guess I have a balanced view. I think, I think that when it's a major life-changing decision which totally relies on your own um, uh, decision, then, then the nanny state becomes a problem. Otherwise, otherwise I, think, I think it's basically a good thing. Thanks very much. Thank you. Uh, yes, that's, that's obviously working. Um, to... Uh, the question of the debate was why, why does the government treat us like children and the reason is because we act like children um, in many instances the decisions we take be they be they big or be they small are in many instances the wrong ones they are from decisions as, as seemingly insignificant as how much we eat, choose to eat and how much we choose to smoke to decisions about whether we want we want to pollute the planet to the extent that we wipe out all human life as as we know it, and as I say, frequently when presented with those decisions, we get the answers wrong, um, and we get them wrong not necessarily out of maliciousness or or, or, or even of uh, of ignorance, but because there is a fundamental disconnect with the sort of choices that we are all presented with as individuals on a day to day basis and the decisions that we are asked to make as part of society and part of uh, part of the collective and we attempt 
to realign those differences and bridge those differences by essentially electing politicians, electing governments, tasking them with with um, producing laws by which we all agreed to abide and live our, live our lives. And by and large, that system serves us quite well. Um, I've had a, w- w- whenever I've taken part in debates of this nature, um, it tends to sort of quickly devolve, devolve into a debate between uh, people who are sort of self-styled big statists and libertarians or, or, or big libertarians, if, if you like. Um, and, and personally, I, I, I regard myself as neither of those. I, I, am, I, I would like prefer to refer to myself as a sort of a benign statist. So I don't necessarily believe it's the government's job to tell people where they should tell, to send their children to school. But I do think it's the state's job to tell people that they do actually have to tell send their children to school. I don't necessarily think it's the, the, the job of the state uh, to tell us how much we can drive our cars nor tell us how much we can drink, but I think it is legitimate for the state to pass lawyers saying we can't combine the two. Um, and we are free uh, to make our... Cho- we, we should be free to make, our, to, to make choices up until they, they, they impact upon the... In impact upon the rest, the rest of our fellow citizenry, and and like it or not, history has taught us that in many instances, we we simply don't make those um, don't make those choices um, those choices in the right way. Now, obviously, it's very it's it, 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 it's rather difficult to make that argument. Obviously, the argument you know we should be all free to make our own decisions as adults, um, is obviously a very, very compelling one. The, the, the problem with it, it, it is it's also wrong. Um, you know, we were invited at the beginning to make, to give examples, um, anecdotal ex- examples to support our arguments. I mean, I remember, as a, uh, I still distinctively remember as a child, being carried around in the front of my mother's car on the knee of my grandmother, who herself was not wearing a seatbelt. And... Uh, was convinced that, that that should an incident happen, she, through her own strength of physical and strength of personality, would would stop me slapping, smacking into the in, 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 into the windscreen. Now, fortunately, that was never put to the put to the test. Um, we, as a society, consistently railed against the argument put forward by the politicians and by the expert that we should be that, that seatbelts should be mandatory they are now mandatory and as a result of that every year hundreds if not thousands of lives are saved and i think whilst we cannot uh, you know forever offset death there are instances where the government has has taken choices on on our behalf which can prevent us uh, prevent us being killed and I actually think preventing people killed, preventing people being killed, is actually is actually a relatively is a relatively good thing. I think one of the problems is with the, with this debate is 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 it swiftly becomes polarised. And one of the arguments on one side of the political spectrum that's put forward is that we are in danger of drifting towards a form of uh, a form of new totalitarianism. 
um, if we if if we allow the state to intervene on our on our behalf. And it's it, and it's exactly right that it, that in certain there are obviously places in the world where where this argument is taken to extremes, and the state is uh, the state does not allow its citizens to have any say in the way that uh, that, that their society is 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 constructed. But that to me is another argument for having laws and regulations we need laws and regulations to protect our civil civil liberties and to to an extent to protect us from the state and we see that now with the debate that we're currently having over the over the human rights act another side of the argument um that, that is put forward is that we simply are not mature enough to make any of these choices for ourselves. And one of the arguments that I, I frequently heard is that we as a society want a situation where we have greater expenditure on uh, on public services, but also also get to pay uh, pay less less taxes, and that that is an irrational argument. The idea of good public services and low taxes to me isn't necessarily irrational. They are both perfectly rational. It's, it may not be possible to meet both those obligations, but they are rational. But the point. The argument for me is that it's not that people cannot make those decisions, and they frequently can do. If you look at the last election, the political party that offered, if you like, the worst, the, the, the gloomiest prospectus were the Tories, and, the, and, and, and they ultimately were elected. So people can make these, make these decisions, and they can make the right decisions, but they have to be forced to make them to an extent by the politicians. And uh, to, to, exactly, to, to wind up and, and to, to conclude... The reality is, despite the fact that we are told we are currently witnessing, you know, that you know the collapse of the collapse of democracy and the, the decline of democracy, actually, we have a governance system that is work, working quite quite well. We have quite we have we have relatively strong, stable government historically speaking. We have a political system that showed at the last election it, it, it does have the flexibility to cope with with coalition government. We are able to filter out um, extremists. And ironically, though we're told simultaneously that we are living through the, through the death of the political process, we are also told that the next general election will be the most, one of the most open and most exciting and most stimulating in our, in our living memory. So the reality is, despite the, uh, the, all the horror stories, the current compact uh, between, the, between the public and the politicians actually does work quite well. Um, I'm interested in this uh, proposition that we should ban smoking in in parks. Uh, that's why a topical thing that I thought I'd bring here um, to talk about. And I think uh, the assumption in arguments of that kind uh, to ban smoking is that the smoker and the non-smoker can't really find any way to negotiate between themselves. So the no smoking sign, I'm going to argue, uh, when it's required by law is functionally equivalent to a no-thinking sign. I can see why some people uh, might find that claim far-fetched, that it's not a big deal to say to someone who smokes, could you smoke over here? Because it is, after all, something that uh, people find quite antisocial or at least quite smelly. Um, But although it seems trivial, I think underpinning banning in that way uh, is a fundamental shift in political culture, um, as I think Dan alluded to, that can be seen more broadly and operating 
in different ways at different levels of society, uh, finding different expression in various aspects of public and increasingly in private life. My interest is in debates about uh, the environment and the political ideas which underpin those debates. I don't think um, it's enough to take these kind of interventions at face value, um, the kind of interventions we're talking about um, uh, that, treat, that treat people as children, um, uh, uh, as face value treatments of real problems themselves. So, for example, I wasn't surprised recently when I read Alan Johnson in The Guardian, uh, and he'd written that if he was king for a day, he would ban Coca-Cola, and that company, he believes, forces people to drink sugary pop. So he says, my power, his sort of assumed power, my power allows me to save adults from themselves, to push them towards healthier beverages, such as rhubarb tea, I think that's how you pronounce it, and, and mango juice. <laughs> and then at the kind of other end of this spectrum, Sir Martin Rees, who's former president of the Royal Society, uh, was asked by Prospect magazine what he would do if he ruled for the day. Uh, sorry, if he, sorry, if he ruled the world. So he didn't challenge the, the, the question, he didn't even indulge it. He said that only an enlightened despot could push through the measures needed to navigate the 21st century safely. I hear he goes on. Spaceship Earth is hurtling through space. Its passengers are anxious and fractious. Their entire life support system is vulnerable to breakdowns. But there is no captain, no authority to safeguard the planet's future. So I believe the premise of both Rees and Johnson's positions is roughly the same. If we're not capable of deciding what to drink, and how can we possibly make decisions about the environment or the economy? And if it was only one of them that were making these kind of claims, it would be easier to take them at face value. But every political institution is making this order of claim. So on Rees's view, for example, democracy is not a sufficiently capable captain of spaceship Earth. It's not enough for Rees that we should decide who the captain should be and what his standing orders should be. The public are just not uh, competent to make that choice. They lack the knowledge, expertise, and intelligence to make choices about their own government. What I think is going on here is, in, in political terms, uh, is rather than seeking a mandate from, from the public, political authority increasingly turns to researchers, doctors, scientists, and special interest groups. Um, and it's from them we get the, the claims that sugar is like crack cocaine and that the planet is like a spaceship without a captain careering towards doomsday. And these researchers are commissioned to identify risks and even the most theoretical and absurd risks, uh, which give power to arguments for something to be done uh, and for new political organisations to see that something is done. Uh, one example of this is Nicholas Stern, who's the author of the influential Stern Report uh, on the economic economics of climate change, which set the ground for a lot of uh, UK climate policy. And he claims that policymaking is usually about risk management. I think that's a very revealing statement, which, which gives the game away. Back when uh, people were most able to manage or understood to be able to manage their own risks, uh, policymakers were called politicians and policymaking was called politics. Uh, but I think politics has been hollowed out and 
in, the, in this new political settlement. And debates descend to parent-child or doctor-patient metaphors because these are the zero level of dependent relationships. Right? Uh, it's a, a very a blandification of, of uh, a very unsophisticated way of looking at society. And this is, this is all about creating dependent relationships rather than relationships based on assent or consent uh, by willing, engaged uh, subjects or citizens. So in conclusion, I don't think we should really take the attempts to eliminate risk from public life and, and increasingly private life at, at face value. Risk society, as it was conceived by uh, Ulrich Beck and Blair's favourite sociologist, Anthony Giddens, has been used as a quite a blunt uh, political instrument not to mitigate risks. Um, that's not to say those risks don't exist, because uh, they certainly do, but under the logic of risk society, uh, the more ordinary the adult's faculties are diminished, so the greater the risks that they are exposed to appear to be, and so the greater the imperative for the government to intervene becomes. And I, I don't think that a, has a healthy conclusion. Ben. Thank you. Okay, I've got, I've got a couple of questions I'm going to ask um, uh, on the, the panel and try and get a conversation going. Uh, we'll do that for a few minutes, and then we'll bash it out to yourselves um, as, as, the, as the key contributors to this discussion. You, you'll know the format if you've been at the conference. Chris, you said that health trumps democracy, which I thought was a very interesting way of posing it. That I was in a session just before coming here, which was looking at um, the science of public health, and, and somebody in there said that, that, that people are very good at making informed decisions. It's just... They're not necessarily the right decisions in terms of the experts, but what they'll do is they'll balance other considerations against what they're being nudged to do. And that, for me, was, was, was quite a good way of looking at it, too. You've written and said that there's a sense of, of mission creep in terms of what the, 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 the reach into our lives that public health uh, um, offices bring. And, and that works alongside a sense of memory loss in terms of what we used to be expecting um, uh, of, our, of, of our lives. You know, we, 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 we've, we've forgotten um, that five years ago we wouldn't have accepted what we accept now. Um, how, how does that process work itself out? How does that memory loss occur, in, in your opinion? Uh, well, I think people get softened up by things. So I think people are in a way, naturally conservative with a small C insofar as they'll accept whatever already exists. And so when you have uh, what are fairly radical changes, like, like the smoking ban, for example, or like our, you know, internationally, by international standards, our alcohol taxes are extremely high, but we don't really notice them. Perhaps we're not fully aware. Perhaps we think, actually, that the, the wholesale price of these products is pretty close to the retail price. They're not. 80% bottle of spirits, for example, is taxed. Um, so we get used to things, and people, you know, human beings are very adaptable. There's a lot of ruin in a nation, as Adam Smith said. You know, people can tolerate an awful, uh, an awful lot of hectoring and nannying, um, and yet continue to to live their lives. You know, there's not going to be a revolution about these paternalistic issues. You know, people aren't going to. No one's going to be up against the wall about this. This is, in the scheme, scheme of things, fairly small beer. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I've got to come back on this idea that. Well, as you kind of hinted at there, yeah, there are costs and benefits. People do seek to maximise their utility. That doesn't mean that people's um, decisions are completely optimal. This is a bit of a, a, um, 
bit of a straw man people make about economics. Nobody thinks that people make the optimal decisions in, as if there's a, in a sense that there's some um, objective way of looking at that. The point is that people are much better placed to judge their own preferences and their own tastes than some bureaucrat or some lawmaker or some public health group. My, um, my consumption patterns pretty much exactly mirror my desires. Okay? I drink exactly the right amount as far as I'm concerned. It's vastly more than the government thinks I should be drinking, <laughs> but it's exactly the right amount for me. And that's because I am very well aware. I may make mistakes. I may sometimes um, you know, uh, buy something I turn out not to like, or I might buy something and not get as much pleasure as I thought I was uh, going to get out of it. But by God, I know a lot more about my, my preferences and my desires, and indeed my tolerance of risk, than any bureaucrat can possibly do. No, no, that, 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 that's interesting. I think, uh, Ben, I'll co come to you as well, because th it's the experts. The experts can uh, confuse me slightly, because the, these experts give us mixed messages, and, and they also give us ludicrous messages. So, um, you know, 30 years ago, um, when I was out drinking as a student, um, I would drink quite a lot of booze. But now, um, three pints is considered a binge, hmm. which, which is, to me is absolutely ludicrous. You know, you know, if I drink three pints, I don't consider myself to be... Uh, um, um. But these, these same experts are telling me something that I consider to be ludicrous, are telling me how, when, when to consider my kids fat, when to consider other things to an, an, an excess, um, whether I should be wearing a seatbelt in the car. You know, when, when my uncle used to put me on his lap and let me drive down uh, the high street uh, at the age of five. Uh, um, that's entirely illegal at that time, let alone now. So the, the role of experts, I think, is, I find, very interesting. Um, is, is it their fault that they are being sucked into the, 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 the deliverance of policy? Um, how, how willing are they? And, and are we expecting too much of experts? Should they just be telling us what they think and then that mediated in a different way? Um, I, I um, have this discussion with experts quite, quite frequently where they, they have absolutely no idea what the hell I'm talking about and, and why I would be suggesting that, that there is a political dimension to these, their scientific research. They, they, I think there's sort of a, an innocence on their behalf. They, 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 um, the, cli the climate, for example, is, is an object that we can sort of measure and we can make statements about it. it, it, it we can track its changes and we can project from those changes. There's no sort of idea that the, that the climate can be, um, uh, to, to some degree, um, socially constructed, and that, that, that what, what we count as climate, um, or you know, extreme climate here, might be in a different part of the world, a very different, uh, have, have very different consequences. So there's no, there's no, uh, nothing hard and fast that they're really uh, necessarily measuring. Um, so I, I think we should sort of like give them a break, as it were, in the sense that, that, that they are, um, they're just doing their jobs, right? They, but these jobs are um, also situated within sort of a political um, uh, a, a context. So once we start to sort of say, here, you know, here, here's this political initiative to get everyone to stop driving their cars or to eat fewer crisps or, you know, whatever it is people want to do, um, of course, people are, you know, of course, those, those, those jobs are going to be made and filled. Is that. No, no, it's a provocation, yeah. that kind of sense. Okay. So, so we get it. Right, okay. No, so. I, don't, I, don't, sure, I don't really blame researchers necessarily. I mean, I think, I think there's a, there is a problem 
when it gets to a level... Uh, I think some researchers, we could say, aren't particularly intellectually <laughs> honest when they present their research. And this kind of... We're, we're going we're gonna, we're gonna to see the end of the world within a decade, or, you know, all the polar bears are going to uh, disappear or whatever. That, 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 that needs some checking. And, and I think it's a, sh- a shame. Sorry. I think it's a shame that sometimes these, the, those, those specialisms don't police themselves. They're not very good, especially in climate and environmental science. They're not very good in saying, hold on, this is nonsense, what Greenpeace is saying. Um, uh, or, or, you know, these, the, the researchers that sort of certainly do make headlines for themselves. Um, they, don't, they, don't, they, don't, they don't get censured by, them, by, their, by their colleagues. Reading the body language. <laughs> no, I just want to make a very small point. Um, I think that the, that the opinion of, of, of the public or, or policy will be di- dictated by experts, even if those experts are not employed um, directly by the government. So, okay, so if these, if these decisions about what we should do about the climate and what we should do about public health are instead made <coughs> by the public, the public tend to be quite easily swayed by the opinions or at least the dressed up opinions of experts um, that appear in places like the mail um, in the science pages uh, and that is where stories like oh okay we're all going to die in 15 years when a meteor strikes the earth etc it's slightly more ludicrous um, ideas about or, or the MMR scare Whereas, uh, because there is an incentive for those experts to kind of sex up their research, and then there is an incentive for the papers to sell it in a way that will cause a sensation. And then, and so many people, uh, opinions then get swayed on a large scale. I mean, I know my grandfather died at the age of 90, um, and at that point he had all kinds of health problems, but he still wouldn't eat beef because of BSE. Um, the possibility, I mean, these have huge power. Whereas if, and, and I think that they, that, that the public, um, the information fed to the public isn't always um, perfect. Whereas if the experts are is directly um, informing government, I think that perhaps there'll be a better outcome. I, I think it was, it was, um, it was um, Anthony Giddens um, who, who, who was proposing to. Uh, Tony Blair, that risk society, you know, his risk society thesis was implemented. I think that public opinion doesn't count for a great deal, actually, in those political decisions to to ban smoking or to. Well, no, I know, but I was I was thinking perhaps that was the alternative that you were suggesting, other than rather than relying on. Well, I think I think, I think there was more. Make it more I, I, I have quite a lot more faith in in people than that, and I think if people were actually actively engaged in in political processes or political decisions, and then. Um, the nonsense that gets paid, uh, that gets printed on uh, uh, the pages of the Mail, and equivalently the Telegraph and the, and the Guardian, I think is my favourite. Um, th- that would get challenged, but um, you, you, there's a sort of more tribe. You know, papers have become tribal, speaking to themselves rather than debate. Uh, you know, speaking across okay. debates. Okay. Right. I'm going to ask because obviously Dan's uh, uh, sitting here was bound to have an opinion on this. Um, uh, do you like to comment on it? Or? Yeah, I mean, I was. Yeah. I mean, I was just going to say. I mean, I think I think we're in slightly dangerous starting off from 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 a, from a false premise. I mean, the debate at the moment is sort of veering towards the nature of the evidence base upon which the decisions we all take make. And so long as the evidence base is accurate, we were, we are mature enough to make the right decisions. We are not mature enough to make the right decisions. The evidence is there before our eyes. I mean, a colleague here said that you know, he he was 
perfectly capable to make the right decisions about the amount he drink. The reality is if you, were, if you were out in any major British city centre last night, you would see the evidence that we aren't mature enough to make those decisions, that the, the amount we drink as a society is having a massive impact on our personal health, on, uh, on our health service, on our productivity, around various aspects of... Uh, various other aspects of society. I mean, as I said, before the, the politicians and the government stepped in and introduced the smoking ban, those who smoked were quite clearly not capable of voluntarily making the decision about where their smoking did or didn't impact on those of us that didn't smoke. And we can all see the, the, the positive benefits of that now and every, every time we go out. And we come back to the argument about, about the environment. There is a debate about the nature of of sort of man-made in, the man-made environmental impact, I completely uh, I completely accept that. But that, to me, is a separate argument. The argument is if the evidence was presented to us collectively and individually that that that, that the decisions we were taking as individuals was degrading the planet to such an extent that we could potentially exterminate human life on that planet. Could we be trusted voluntarily to change our behaviour without the politicians stepping in? And I think the reality is we couldn't. Okay. Right, so there's a lot of hands which I find encouraging. So what we'll do is we'll start, we'll start on this side um, with one, two, three, and then we'll move, we'll move around. Thank you very much. Uh, Tony Gitsenbus from Debating London. Uh, my question to the panel is this, and I ask this as someone who considers myself to be a conservative, liberal, small c, big L. Now... In this debate, I've been trying to reconcile two contradictory principles here, which is one, that uh, it is unreasonable to expect somebody to feel to be able to do whatever they want to themselves, I drink as much as I want or um, eat to the point of being unhealthy, and then expect to be treated on a taxpayer-paid um, health service, and two, that the role, the priority of the state should be to maximise the freedom of the individual. So to play devil's advocate, my question to you is this. What would you think about um, reforming the social contract so that you make a deal with the individual and say, okay, you can sign a waiver here that says you can do whatever you want. You can drink as much as you want. You can smoke as much as, much as you want. You can eat as much as you want. But by signing this waiver, you will now no longer be entitled to any state-provided services. What do you think would be the implications of that and where particularly those of you who stand on the, on the libertarian side of this debate um, stand on that particular question? I'll, I'll take two or three. Thank you. So two short questions. So the first one is the instinctive reaction is to blame nanny state for, for these restrictions, but I think it's a bit more complicated. So the other day I was walking outside Canary Wharf and you had these buildings and there were some kind of covered areas that, and you could see these huge signs, no smoking. And I was wondering, obviously this hasn't got to do something with law, so why are these people kind of imposing to themselves? And then hoping to escape from the nanny state, I applied for a lectureship in Hong Kong and in the job description, which was like 10 lines, one of these 10 lines was, please keep in mind that this is a completely smoke-free university. And then I checked and I said, basically, you cannot smoke even outside. So my question is, why, all, why is also that private enterprise is buying into this? And the second point is, Christopher was a bit, uh, he wasn't really optimist about the political reaction to this, but... I am a bit more optimist because when you talk to your pals and you ask them, do you think the nanny state has taken it a bit too far? 
no one will say no. Most will say, yeah, actually, I, I recognize it. And even if you talk to first-year students, they will say, yes, actually, this has gone too far. And we've seen, for example, the United States, that there has been a political reaction, maybe not the most progressive people in the world, I don't know, Tea Party or the Libertarians, but there has been a reaction. And my question is, do you see this reaction coming in the UK? I know Christopher says no, but what about, for example, other people in the panel? Thank you. Just a little bit of American trivia. When our Constitution was signed back in the 1770s, um, one of the things that many people don't know is that only males above the age of 21 who own land could vote because it was assumed that these people were the most intelligent, educated people in the country. They could make land, they could make decisions for everybody else. It took 200 years, but finally we have uh, voting for everyone. What we're seeing with nanny states is kind of the reverse of that. We're seeing more and more of the um, uh, authority be given to smaller and smaller groups. These are the experts. So if the regular people can't be assumed to be able to uh, make their own decisions in life, why are we even letting them vote? Because that's an even bigger decision. Um, my question is to uh, Dan and Martha, really, that you're both talking quite medical terms about health interventions that you can make in society and improve the, the general lot of, of people's health. But in terms of actual medicine, if you want to give someone a drug or you want to, you know, give them a treatment, you have to ask their consent. It's the most basic thing of medical practice. But for some reason, this kind of political... Uh, public healthcare aspect is completely runs counter to that entirely, and I think there's a, yeah, the, the difference between day-to-day clinical medicine and, and this kind of more political stuff. I'd be interested to see what, what people have to say there. Thanks. Um, I think we need to be a bit more challenging about experts. I mean, if, if a government were to come along and say, "Well, the next time we need to know about fizzy drinks, we'll ask Coca-Cola because they know an awful lot about it." we'd all say, sure, there's something wrong there. Yes, of course, Coca-Cola know an awful lot about fizzy drinks, but they've got a vested interest. The vested interest is very transparent. What about the interests of the experts? They've got careers, they've got grants to, to obtain, they've got funding to get from here and there. They want, to appear, they want to appear on television, they want to do whatever they do. Their motivation may be slightly less pecuniary in some cases than that of a large corporation. Uh, but actually, you know, sometimes a large corporation will know what it's doing. Sometimes the experts will be motivated by uh, vested interests. We just need to, to look rather more critically at all the sources of advice um, and, uh, and, and make a, a judgment without assuming that, that one side is simply trying to help us and the other side is simply trying to fleece us. Okay. Right, so back to the panel. Martha, would you like to come back on that initially? Um, yeah, so the... the, the the interesting point about doctors and consent, having to you ask if it's consent. Um, I think that the analogy uh, there is quite similar, actually, because um, so it's not like with these public health initiatives we're forcing people to make decisions. You are, in a way, not asking them for consent, but just slightly coercing them in one direction by making it slightly more expensive to buy um, to buy cigarettes or slightly more expensive to buy something that is uh, bad for you, for example. And, and in doctor surgery, you're also slightly pushed into one decision. You say, well, you know, the weight of evidence is on this side. You know, if you, if you, if you take antibiotics, that, will, that is very likely to cure your, um, 
your infection, whereas if you don't, you'll probably get worse. I mean, the evidence is, is, is presented in such a way that you will more likely make a certain type of decision. And that is exactly what happens in public health policy. No, there is a choice. I mean, you're still making a choice whether or not to buy the cigarettes. It's just more expensive for you to do so. It's still a choice. We're not ta- Nobody's having their choice taken away from them. There's just a slightly, there's just a pressure put on that choice, which is in the direction um, of, of general good health rather than whatever's happening um, to the company that's selling it. It, of, course it's a, of course it's an infringement on freedom. And John Stuart Mill said that uh, any, any uh, syntax, as we would call them now, is a form of prohibition for those who can't afford to pay. You are, you are being... Essentially, it's a fine. This is how these syntaxes should be looked at. It's like, yeah, you're free to buy these things. We're just going to fine you for it. That's how they should really be seen. It's not... It, no, it's different from a fine, because with a fine, you, it, there's a stigma involved. You've been well, fined. You have a black mark against your name. It's very different. It's just slightly more, expe- it's just slightly uh, more expensive. Uh, no, it's, it's, uh, you're having a freedom taken away. With you. You, you're, the, the fruits of your labour give you freedom. If, you, if you're having that taken away oh, from you unnecessarily you're, 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 you're on moralistic grounds, okay, sorry. then... Then you're let, you, 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 there's something else you can't buy because your cigarettes are eight pounds more expensive than the otherwise. But you've got eight pounds less to buy your can food, your fuel, or your entertainment. Can I just say one thing. Right, got one thing. You're right, talking about then. it in far too grandiose terms. You're, I mean, you're talking about buying cigarettes. You're not talking about whether or not you have the freedom to move countries or whether or not you have the freedom to do the job that you want or marry who you like. I mean, this is just these are tiny things. You're not going to. Well, spend I think what, 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 you, okay, what you're able to do with your own money, I would think, is a fairly core freedom. Can I come back on one of the points? <laughs> Can I come back yeah, on one yeah, of the points? Yeah, go, go for it, Chris, yeah. Well, this gentleman here asking about the, the waiver uh, so smokers and drinkers can opt out, um, which incidentally is pretty much a logical conclusion, by the way, or this argument about, oh, it costs the NHS this. Essentially, people who are generally big fans of the NHS make this argument. But really, they're, they're pushing towards an insurance system, which you know, we can have that debate if you like. Um, the waiver would be great for me. Uh, if you ask about what the consequences would be, I assume, of course, being a fair man, that you would want to give these smokers and drinkers all the tax they've paid on, on cigarettes and alcohol over the years. Um, for me, I'm, I reckon it's about £3,000 a year, 20 years. So I get about £60,000. So, yeah, I would support that. Um, <laughs> And uh, the, the other consequence would be that people who don't smoke and don't drink have to pay more tax. But, of course, you, know, you, you want to do it fairly, so that's, that's good. I mentioned in my opening remarks that it, it, this is just a myth, the idea that certainly smokers and the obese, dr- drink is a little bit different. There are costs associated with that, although they're much lower than the amount that the government gets from, in alcohol duty. It is simply wrong to say that obese people and smokers cost the welfare state as a whole uh, more than those who are not um, one of those two things. And this has been shown time and time again, and yet it keeps coming back. And I think it comes back because naturally, as a society, I think we do have a sort of John Stuart Mill approach to things. We do think, well, you can do what you want, you know, but your right to swing your fist ends at my nose and all that kind of thing. Um, But I have explained what I've just explained hundreds of times, I think, to people um, who've made that argument sincerely. And not once have they said, okay, in that case, I don't mind people smoking and drinking. On one occasion, somebody just said, yeah, okay. I still don't like fat people. And that, that, that's the truth of it. People will throw up all sorts of objections which you've got to crash through before you get to their real objection. And I think with a lot of this stuff, it's actually a, a moral objection rather than anything to do with economics. Dan? Uh, yeah, I mean, a, a couple of points. I mean, just uh, to come back to the point we just made there, the, the, the problem with the libertarian argument is I've got no objection 
to you smoking yourself to death. I've got no objection to you smoking in the privacy of your own home. What I have got an objection to you is you smoking next to me on a train. I've got an objection to you exercising your free right and me having a, me going home stinking of fags. And I think we we have a better society. We have a better society now, whereby you are forced to do that in the privacy of your own home rather than rather than in my local pub. My local pub is a much nicer environment now uh, that you can't smoke in it. Frankly, okay. well, no, that's a, that's an that's oh, it's, it's an not. Empirical fact. The pubs are better. It's an empirical fact. It's an empirical fact. I na- Even no. For well, it, it's, it's not an empirical... Let me, let me just say, it's not an empirical fact if you think it is nice for me to go out of a pub and go home stinking of cigarette smoke. It is an empirical fact that in the days before we had the smoking ban, if I went into a pub as a non-smoker, indeed, even if a majority of people in the pub were non-smokers, they would still go home stinking of cigarettes, and they now don't. Now, that is an empirical fact. If we come back again to the, the, the issue about about the experts which is, which, which, which is raised. Uh, I just go back to the argument. Do, do we need... Ex- is there some debate about the fact that, 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 that smoking gives us cancer? Are we, are we debating the expertise there? Are we debating the fact that on a Saturday night our city centres will be turned into war zones because people have drunk too much? There's no debate about the, about the evidence behind this, that this is the reality. To go back to the argument that was specifically the argument about, uh, about the uh, people's right to the requirement for consent on medical, on, on, on medical care, yeah, I mean, if it's your choice, it's your choice. But similarly, we would not. I don't think you would argue, for example, in a situation where parents were denying their child life-saving, a life-saving medical intervention on, say, religious grounds, that it would not be the responsibility of the state to step in and then provide that child with, the med- with, 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 that, with that medical intervention against the wishes of its parents. Okay. Okay. No, but, I mean, the adults are taking the decision in that instance. I, I, will, I will come back out in a second. Ben's going to speak, and I'm going to look for ex- uh, experts in the audience on civic society. Okay, that's what I'm looking for. Okay. Um, so I, I'm taking with this idea uh, that people might have their vote taken away. Like, why not? Like, actually, but what, that's what has happened. Uh, people, the, the, the quality of the vote is, is uh, I mean, a vote is just a process, right? What happens after people have made, um, uh, you know, the, the quality, the, the, the value of a vote depends on the, the contest that's being, that's being, that's on offer. If there's a sort of political consensus about the, 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 the management of risk or what, you know, what political priorities uh, should be, then your vote doesn't count for toffee, right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a nonsense to be able to, to be given a choice between three identical positions. And I think this speaks to Dan's point earlier about um, his view that, that we, we live in a sort of healthy, functioning democracy. Right? I think that the, 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 the elections next year we'll, we'll challenge that view we've we've uh, the last 20 or 30 years of british democracy has uh, or, or british british elections have have offered very little choice and meanwhile we've seen an, uh, a development of many institutions that sort of uh, 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 se- seemingly take the job of uh, redu- mitigating risk or, or or managing society in ways um, regardless of people's political choices, and people have, be, people do seem to be uh, uh, to have had enough of that. 
and that compact is falling apart. We're seeing it falling apart in the in the uh, in in the disagreements between um, whether the UK should remain intact. Um, we're, we're seeing uh, that in disagreements about whether the UK should remain part of the EU. People aren't very happy with that uh, with with uh, their politics at the moment. Uh, meanwhile, there have been you know deep structural uh, political Sorry, problems. But, but, but just because people disagree, why does that demonstrate there is a fundamental problem with the democracy? You know, disagreement is a fundamental part of democracy. Because I mean, the that, two. But what 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 is it that people are not you, having? Let, a, let, 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 let people have been people have been denied the opportunity to disagree because that the priorities of politics have become. But what can they disagree on? So what what can't they disagree on? <laughs> Dan, give, give, hey, let me make this point. We'll go out there, and you'll get you'll get another. There's, I, I can't think of any serious political contest between of, of, of substantial ideas that in in my adult lifetime, yeah, that, and that that reaches its its uh, conclusion in debates about. Um, uh, no, I'm I'm okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. I'm ge I'm getting loads of hands here, and I want I want people in the audience to kind of try and address some of these points as well, if they can. So, at the back, and then and then we'll go next to you, and then we'll come forward. Okay. I can't make up my mind whether Dan um, is just unbearably arrogant to think that we all make the wrong mistakes, or alternatively, he could just be a really grumpy old man, which I'm tending that to as well. think. That as well. He can't obviously remember when he was young and went out and had a good time in the town. Um, um, I, I think the point that I would like to challenge about what Dan said is, there, is it, uh, 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 in, in what you argued, there was a real collapse, historical collapse. In actual fact, the times when the state took the decision, say, to um, have universal education or to introduce, even more modernly, introduce seatbelt legislation or drink-driving legislation was actually at a time when the state did not interfere in public life or talk about um, moral choices and talk about healthy living choices and that. They took those decisions at a time when they were democratically elected politicians who actually distanced themselves from interfering in our own private lives. Could I just make a second point? Very quickly. Very quickly. There is very, very little good evidence for some of the public health campaigns that are around at the moment, um, and very, very, even less um, evidence for the outcomes of these campaigns. So let's make that point. And finally, I think the main question we have to really address is the point that was raised um, on my um, far left um, about softening us up. And a point that hasn't been made at all is how we've been softened up through issues like child protection and child abuse and all of these other um, issues. We have been softened up into accepting greater and greater state interference in our right to parent or our right to decide what we eat or don't eat. Okay, can you pass it along to the guy next to you? Yeah. Hi, I'm Mark Littlewood from the Institute of Economic Affairs. I think some of the issues that Martha and Dan have raised have been where do we draw the line between self-regarding and other-regarding actions? So climate change, clearly other-regarding. 
What brand of cigarettes you smoke in your own home? Less other regarding that, self-regarding. And my direct question to Martha is, do you agree on the self-regarding stuff? You gave in your opening remarks the view that the government was helping me because otherwise I'd have to spend half a day in a supermarket uh, analysing exactly what I should buy. I recently bought a very expensive television set. I didn't go to the Ministry for Television for advice on what to buy. I bought Which Television magazine for £4.99 from Smith's. If people really want that, their advice about what they're buying, they will seek it privately. Uh, or buy the, from the free market, or magazines like What Television. I'd like all the panellists there to ask on public health interventions. It follows on from this lady's point. If you want to bring a new pharmaceutical to market, it goes through years of trials. Even if the initial prima facie evidence is that it's got a 90% chance of stopping dementia, and that's not enough to bring it to market. Years of trials, endless trials about unintended consequences of these pharmaceutical products. It might cure dementia, but does it increase the risk of heart disease? Only after billions of pounds of expenditure and tests and years of it is it allowed to come to market. Shouldn't the same robust and rigorous procedures be applied to recommendations from the public health lobby? Yeah, this is a question more for Dan, because I was really taken aback by your remark that everything is, po- is fine in politics. I, I mean, we are living in a period of the highest level of depoliticization in, in the UK and in Europe, not just here. You have the strongest attacks in, on living standards that you have never seen uh, in, in historical periods. Most of the British households have an incredible level of indebtedness, and it has not been resolved because most of the, most of the policy of the government is to actually get people more into to that. And you have um, a massive amount of unemployed people who are actually on pills because they suffer from so-called mental illnesses. You know, people who are most vulnerable are being treated on, on mental illnesses. To me, this is, there is something really, really wrong, something really not good with the state of British politics. So I'm just really, can you really justify what you said that everything is fine? Now, uh, the other question about evidence, uh, I just wanted to um, ask you, uh, the people who are so in favor of it, if you, if you are involved in policymaking, you know that most of the evidence comes from the lobbyists. So the fact that uh, most politicians rely so much on lobbyists doesn't actually say something about the death of politics, the fact that political parties can no longer have arguments within their own ranks about how they want to lead society. Uh, returning to the actual question and the, uh, the debate title, um, why is it? I, mean, I don't think any, anybody would disagree that there has been quite a lot of intervention in ways that that would have been seen very strange twenty or thirty years ago. Uh, um, and I'm curious to know why that that change would have taken place. And it, it, from what Dan and Martha have said, it's like it's just everybody's just suddenly realised that this would be a brilliant idea, and that you know that we're we're actually all flawed as decision decision makers, and we need the experts. Um, I'd like to f- f- float in the idea uh, of the, decli- you know, uh, the significant decline of one side of politics, the left, uh, in two ways. First of all, that a lot of the, uh, the, the ability of uh, people who are used to being members of you know, big organisations, working class organisations, to be independent, to act independently, has been greatly weakened by the d- decline of those organisations. And secondly, a lot of the people that would have been attracted to them in the past, you know, the, 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 the activist left, have gone off into other areas of life, often in, in well-meaning ways, for example, into public health, and, uh, and uh, applied the sort of same uh, government-knows-best logic that they once would have applied to, uh, uh, to the economy, say, to now go 
to you know do good by telling us how to to live our lives, and I think that's an important change. But it'd be good if people were explicit about where, where they think uh, that that change has come from. Thank you. Okay. Uh, it, uh, right. Uh, so uh, our speakers, in the order that they spoke, um, to sum up, two minutes each. Chris. Thank you. Yes. Um, I to come back to this thing about um, you know you can do what you like like you can do what you like as so long as you don't um, infringe on me or if you don't make me have to pay more tax and so on. You know I think this uh, this idea is running out of ground now. I mean secondhand smoke was the great example of an externality which which was used as a way to get government uh, to intervene. And um, I think actually that Dan's objection to going home smelling of smoke was a more more genuine concern actually than people. You know, th- worried that they were going to get lung cancer being in the pub. But nevertheless, both are legitimate externalities. That, of course, has been solved in this country. You know, smokers have the entire inside of the country to themselves. Uh, the externality to do with, with taxpayers, yes, a lot of people still believe that you know, the, you know, healthy living people are somehow subsidizing uh, people who have vices, and it's a shame people still believe that. What I found very interesting this week... Um, with this whole idea of banning smoking in parks, is that's just been abandoned now. There's not even any attempt to pretend that this is something we're doing because other people are being, uh, you know, uh, suffering some sort of externality. It was purely about this is for your own good and you're not going to do this anymore. We don't want to see it. We don't even want to see it because a child might see it. I mean, I was absolutely appalled by, you know, the, the draconian... Uh, you know, idea, and, for the, and there were other dr- equally draconian ideas, but the, but the banning smoking outdoors was uh, was a particularly dreadful one. And it was very interesting, even though Boris Johnson pretty much distanced himself from it, very interesting to see how many bigots were smoked out of the woodwork. Uh, it was almost as if Boris had just done it as an experiment, just to see, let's see how many people agree with this, and we can, we can see who the enemy is. It was appalling listening to uh, local and national radio, seeing how many people... Actually, their concern has got nothing to do with second-hand smoke or the amount of money they're going to have to pay for the NHS. They don't like it, and they're going to stop it, and they'll okay. use any means necessary. All right. Thanks, Chris. Martha? Uh, yes, I'm going I'm to just talk about the question that you directly... Um, uh, directed at me. Um, yeah, uh, you said you bought, you bought a TV, and then you, you sought... Uh, because you cared about it, you, you sought... Pri- yeah, you... you it's, yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, I think that's quite different from the kind of nudges that are put in our way to um, to stop us making sort of more unhealthy decisions in a supermarket or whatever, because the TV is something you probably don't buy that often. A uh, pack of sweets or a pack of cigarettes is probably something that you buy quite a lot, and um, people don't go off and seek that information. That just takes too much time <coughs> up. Um, so, I mean... There's, in, there's a sort of... I mean, Dan was talking about how people don't often behave in the economy in their own best interest. There's a growing field called behavioural economics which shows that um, people, because they're distracted, because they're tired, because they're hungry, because they're ill, people don't um, often make optimal decisions. If, if, uh, if a, before judges have lunch, the last case that they see, they're much more likely to, um, to give a, a, a negative... Sorry, they're, they're much more likely to, to find against the person they see before them. After they've had lunch, they're much more likely to find for them. And, um, and I think that if we're just talking about public health, what we're doing is we're actually, by, optim- by having that goal of giving everyone the uh, right to perfect health or whatever it was, um, I think we're actually enabling them to act within our economy in a much 
um, more um, effective way uh, if everyone's kind of exhausted and ill from, 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 uh, from constantly having to, to, to make these small decisions. Um, okay. Yeah, okay. All right. Right, okay, thanks. Dan. Uh, yeah, I mean, also to uh, to answer the specific, specifics of Mark's question, no, I mean, I, I think you should have the right to choose your own TV seat and indeed your own brand of brand of cigarettes. And as I said, the initial question was, why does the government uh, treat us like children? As I said, because because we act like children. I mean, I mean, I think we, uh, you know, um, I think I, I'll shout. I, you know, I, I I think we should try and give children, uh, you know, added responsibility, but not but not complete responsibility. And to use the example that that, that you cited. Um, I, I think that if you do have individuals who are who are suffering from what they've been told are terminal diseases or, or, or dis- terrible diseases such as d- dementia, there has to be a way of protecting them from those that would sell them products falsely, giving them false hope that the, the products they're selling would would actually cure would, would, would cure those illnesses and provide relief from those illnesses, especially in instances when those products could actually could actually provide them with with, with physical harm. And to conclude, um, I mean, I think the point that's made that that you know this 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 thesis that you know I, you have the right to do what you like as long as it doesn't impact on anyone else is is running out of road. I hope it's not running out of road because the inverse of that is, I have the right to do what I want and damn everybody else. Uh, this evidence-based policy question. I, someone said was evidence-based policy isn't subject to having its own test of. Of efficacy is that right? Is that was that the question? Was that your? Oh well, I thought I thought it was an interesting point anyway because I think in policy um, there seems to be this view that evidence speaks for itself that you can just you can appoint a panel and then they'll find the the, the right evidence and then that doesn't need to be challenged or interrogated. I think that gives us the moral dimensions to this argument really that if you if you dare if you dare suggest them sometimes it seems like you want people to have. Uh, if, you, if, if you don't think things are as bad as... Uh, if you suggest things might not be as bad as, uh, as is claimed, you want people to have cancer, you want the end of the world to, 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 uh, to, to happen as, as soon as possible um, and for all the polar bears to drown. I think that there's probably always some middle ground between the end of the world and, uh, uh, um, and, and driving our cars a bit more. So I, th- I, so I think we've got to interrogate evidence, we've got to interrogate those assumptions... Um, Otherwise, we've got like evidence-based policies, just uh, a kind of fig leaf, for and it becomes a tyranny. Um, we have to we sort of end up fighting, fighting, uh, fighting evidence when when really it's just the same the same kind of form of politics behind it that always were, was there. Okay, thank you. Can you please thank our speakers? <laughs>